Uh, tonight on your schedule, I think it said the unity of the church as well as church discipline. And I wanted to address the idea of church discipline for a few moments. And before I got to it, I felt like I needed to explain church membership for a moment to, so that church discipline would make more sense. And so it just took unity. It was something we even had. That chapter was actually an expansion of the previous chapter a little bit. So I figured that we'll just leave that there. And tonight we'll take these few moments to look at church membership and church discipline. So I'm going I'm to step off into this. I, I hope you find this interesting. And in fact, if you think over the years, <clears throat> times in church, there's maybe of times we've addressed things in this class you've never heard taught in a single lesson. Uh, I can't remember a time I sat through a class that explained the biblical reason we have church membership. I mean, to sit down and go, why do we have members? And so hopefully tonight as I walk through the scriptures, it can be helpful to you. Many of you in this room, because, you know, it's a reality of our church. Many of you are members of our church. You, you in some fashion right now, if I were to pull up, you know, we organize membership. If I were to pull up on our database your name, it would either say member or not member. I mean, we classify, and many of you, probably most of you in this room, are members of Hickory Grove Baptist Church. So why is it that we do that? I mean, why don't we just all come together here, love Jesus together, and go home? Why is it that we feel the need to mark people as a member of the church, and then to the level we do, keep track of it? I mean, we, we are detailed in our tracking. It's not, it's not something we do in a haphazard manner. You know, like we might take attendance every now and then, and we're like, well, we might take it, we might know if you're here or there. That's not as big a, big a deal to us to tracking whether you're a member of the church. Many of you maybe grew up in a Baptist church, or you grew up in a church where membership was a part of it. But it can be a challenge when you, maybe that was culturally how you grew up. You've always done it. That's kind of, I mean, that's how I grew up. And then you sit down with somebody. And they look at you and they say, well, I, I love Jesus. I want to go to your church. But why is it that you feel the need that you have to write my name down as a member? Like, what's the... Why is that, in, and where is that in the Bible? And so then you all of a sudden have to pull out this reason, and you start thinking, well, how am I going to explain why it is important for a person to be a member of the church? I think it's important. It's pretty easy to say it's important to attend a church. We say it often like there aren't Christians, there's not, not an idea of the Bible of people who are Christians that are not connected to a church. But to press this further, why do we believe in church Membership. And so, what I'd like to do tonight is to give you the case for that and to explain that as best I know how, uh, why we have church membership. And then at the end of that, we will speak about the practice and the idea of church discipline, which will make more sense in light of church membership. I do want to recommend a book as I do this, is a book by, we, we often recommend these Nine Marks books, they're small. And simple to read. If this is a topic that fascinates you and uh, you're interested in, it's a book by Jonathan Lehman. Uh, it's called Church Membership. And it's a, it's a great read. In fact, much of what I'll, just so I, for my own plagiarism's sake, much of what I'll say is in this book. So without citing him and quoting him uh, for the content, there's a lot of tonight that will come more from this book than maybe the Allison book that we've been reading. So anyway, I'll mention that one. Church Membership by Jonathan Lehman is the book. So there's a, a basic introduction of what we're going to do tonight. Let's, speak, let's begin speaking about the idea of authority. That's how we'll begin. The concept of authority. Authority is actually a good thing. The modern world oftentimes villainize, villainizes authority. And you can, I, I'm not, I want to be careful with this because I don't want it to sound like a political or some sort of agendaed commentary. But I do want to say 
that if you watch our culture, you can see uh, an effort to dismantle authority structures right now. It's an anti-authoritarian mindset. And, you know, it can be traced all the way back, probably where I would begin if I were tracing it, is back to when, some people trace it back to when when we had no-fault divorce, and all of a sudden you see this attack on the family to when you begin to see where now anymore the idea of a traditional family unit in our culture is not even valued. And you see this dismantling of the home. You, you, however you believe about divorce or whatever you might think about these things, you would say that across America we have a problem with marriages and families, with mothers and fathers, and with authority. Even just what, and I, I don't want to get too far into this, but watching TV, um, even the way they set up the authority structure in the home is almost as if the 15-year-old in the house is the smart one who's barely learned how to feed himself, and then the grown adult who's managing the whole thing is the idiot, and then you have this flip. I mean, it's painted that way in, in movies and in culture. I mean, there's a show my, me and my wife are watching, and it's like the parents have to back off, and the kids are the ones who have it all figured out, right? And, again, I'm not, not here to bemoan all this other than to say the fact our culture is pressing against any sort of authority in their life. We, we have, we're not creating more laws. We're reducing the amount of laws. We, we want to have less restriction in our life. We don't want any sort of authority. So I bring that whole conversation up to say that Authority is under attack. And even in the world of sexual ethics, any sort of authority to be told what to do, it's up to you to decide whatever you would like. So, in other words, my point is to say, when we start talking about the church, we start talking about membership in the church, and and what I want to couch it in is the idea of authority in your life. It's not a popular thing. And... um, Ultimately, it's rooted in the idea that God is our ultimate authority. So God rules all things. The word that Lehman will use in his book is the word imperium. It's kind of like imperial, but imperium. It means absolute power. It means that whoever has an imperium makes the final call without anybody questioning them. They have the authority. That's what authority is, right? The ability to make the decision without somebody questioning you. Many of you in your job or place in life or family, there are places you have been granted authority in your life. You you have authority. God has absolute authority. He over everything makes the call. So, um, that would be why our society probably has, our world has such a problem with all these other authorities, because they've cast off the authority of God as well. But we, as believers, would say he's not just our Savior, he is our Lord. So we understand that my life is subject to his authority. He has all power. Meaning that I'm more subject to his authority than I am the authority of the nation. I'm more subject to the authority of the Lord than I am the authority of the United States. He is my highest authority. Now, um, what's interesting for believers is that this authority does get passed down. The second thing, I, third thing I've written there is authority is given by God. So, trace it all the way back. Creation, God has all authority. When you were created, you weren't created with any sort of inherent authority. You were given that authority by God. You know, our sinful hearts tend to think when we're born that I have authority on my own. 
But you only have what authority that has actually been given to you. It's the same way you worked at whatever job you might be in. Think about it in whatever workplace you might think of managing. Wherever the position you have, you have an area that you have authority over. Well, that authority is only there because somebody has given it to you. Some particular boss or authority figure has granted you this spot. In the same way it works in all of creation, the only authority we have is what God has given us. So you think back always to the garden where God gives authority of man over creation. Speaks about how you now have authority to eat of the, the, the vegetables, you eat of the meat, you can eat of the land. You now have this authority that the Lord has given man. But I'll get to this more in a moment. That's what drives down that authority, the Lord has actually given authority to the local church. He's actually given the church the ability to have some sort of authority in our lives. Again, limited, doesn't have absolute authority, but there is some role that the church has in your life. Therefore, you don't think about the church like a club or a service that is provided for you. This is the danger of kind of how people see church today. Now, the, the church does have functions that are like a club, and it does have services that are provided to your life. So I, I don't want to say these things aren't real. I'm saying they're short of what the actual picture is of joining something that is more like a family. Because if you see it just like a club, I don't have to attend it regularly. If I have a club down the road, I can just choose to join this club or that club. Then church is just optional. It's, I might want to add church onto my plate of the different things I'm involved in. You just think of it like all the other things you would join or to be a part of. Or the reverse is, you would look at the church and say, well, this church is only serving me in these regards. But instead, you should think of it more like a family. We all have a bond, and here's what it is. Under King Jesus, we all have submitted to his authority. See, that's what's different about a club. Club, you just join the club, you get yourself out of the club. A service, let's say, let's say you uh, do your banking with Wells Fargo and you decide tomorrow I'm going to, to Bank of America. Well, this service didn't meet my need, I'm going over to this one, that's fine. You weren't in any sort of submission to any sort, everybody who's doing banking business there is not submitting to something bigger, but everybody that's going to church here and is a member here agrees that we submit to a higher authority. We are all in submission to God. Another analogy that you can draw, and there's lots of analogies in the, um, the Bible, but one I want to point out, when it speaks about us as a kingdom of people, we're a part of the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God is not completely here. In fact, the kingdom is an already, it's partially here, but it's a not yet. Ultimately, the kingdom will be actualized at the very end. But in a sense, they described, the, the analogy here is of an embassy. Like, we are an outpost in a foreign land. We're not in our home. We're not here. We're set up in a land that's of the world. And the church serves like an outpost. That you are a part of the kingdom and your connection and your gathering in that foreign land is the church. So, that's the idea. Of, okay, so I've drawn kind of a big swipe of authority. We're under submission to authority. The church, in a sense, is not a club. It's not a service. And now it's, it's more like a family we're a member of, and it's an embassy or an outpost in a foreign land. So I put a definition here. There's lots of, I could even have put several different ones here. This one I thought was, could be helpful to us here. What is a church member? If we were to define this thing, what, what does it mean to be a church member? Here's one definition I thought was helpful. 
A church member is a person who has been officially and publicly recognized as a Christian and a part of Christ's universal body. So we have officially acknowledged you're a part of God's kingdom. We know you're a part of that, and we acknowledge you are gathering with this local group of believers. So if we were to look to the Bible, where I want to say, how do we start speaking about the Bible? So I've done a big picture. Now I want to read some biblical text to you for a moment to say, well, what is it in the Bible that would point to actual membership in a church? Where would we get the idea? Because there's nothing in the Bible that speaks about the elaborate database system that we currently have that tracks names and people. Right? It doesn't say you should build a system so that you can track members and you have to make sure you keep their card when they become... I mean, why do we have that whole system? Where does the idea come from in the Bible? So let's start with the book of Acts. A lot of different verses here. I thought this would be the simplest way to begin the story. If we, be, if we go to the book of Acts, it's the start of the early church. If you go to Acts chapter 1, before the Holy Spirit has descended in this powerful fashion and begins speaking in tongues and this massive moment of growth for the church, and before Peter gets up and preaches, there's a group of people who have gathered. Now, I want to just draw out the nuance of how much attention the church paid to their number. Notice in Acts 1, verse 15, to begin with, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, so this is when they were in the upper room in Acts 1, the company of the persons was in all about 120. So even early on, they're not an organized church at this point in the sense of the Holy Spirit, this is real early, but they are starting to go, here's our 120 that is among us. They know who is with them, even before the Holy Spirit descends. Press it further down. Go to Acts chapter 2. Holy Spirit comes down, and this massive moment happens where all these people are professing faith in Christ. And I'm, you know, we'll get to it here. 3,000 people are added to their number. It had to feel a bit chaotic, right? I mean, think about going from 120 to 3,000. That's a fast growth. So there would be reason for them to think, I will sort all this out later. We'll see how many of you stick, right? I mean, there's a sense of, we'll see how much all this works out. But it's not how they operate. Look at the end of chapter 2. I'll put the verses on here for you. I'll just kind of walk through it slowly. Just start the way the church was thought of. Verse 41 so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So a couple things here, I just want to start with those two points. One, they counted. They knew, these, they knew these people. So on the first day, they didn't just go, well, we got a bunch here. And they were figuring out who these people were and counting them, and baptizing them. So there's a sense of this numbering of who they are. But the reason, the reason they start doing that is because they're about to start practicing things among themselves that they do different than the world. Look, look at the next verse. So then they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread, so you get taking the Lord's Supper, and prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed, hear the phrasing here, they were together. And they had all things in common. How did they know who to have stuff in common with? There begins to be this idea of a gathering of the church. Verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belonging and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together... And breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, 
praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord, again, added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So so you get this sense the church is starting to organize in a fashion. I understand this is early. To press it further, and this is where I'll, I'll start drawing it in here, I'll mention a couple texts. Acts chapter 6, they'll call deacons. In an organized fashion, they will have deacons. It will be a group of people that gets together and calls deacons. It's not just anybody, it's of their number. But then Acts chapter 8, this church that's in Jerusalem, persecution breaks out and they scatter. They go all over the region. So you think, okay, at this point, it's just going to be Christian free-for-all. This is where Christians should just be going wherever. We'll gather every now and then, but everybody just be their own Christian. That's not the case. Everywhere they go, they organize in a local church. Christians will show up in Samaria, Damascus, Lydda, Joppa, Caesarea. All over they will gather in these churches. I put the verse there, Acts chapter 11, verse 26. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And then you start seeing these churches pop all over the book of Acts. If you just keep reading through the book of Acts, again, I didn't want to just rifle through every single one of these. But you see churches, and so you start to see these organized groups of people. Two ways to think about membership here are organic and institutional. Here's what I mean. Church membership happens in organic and institutional ways. Think about it like in the body, it's the bones and the flesh. In the institutional way, it's the bones. It's the, we've written your name on a roll. We have marked you down. We have a process to which we understand. When you come to join the church, we have a conversation with you. We fill out a card. We track you. When you decide to go somewhere else, you go to another church. They send a letter to our church. You let her out. We remove. That's institutional. The other side of it is it's not just purely that, right? It's it's the fact we're all in this room together. You're with your Sunday school class on a Sunday. You're with the body of believers. Membership in the body is also this organic connectivity to other believers. And I would say even because of those verses we read in Acts, there's a commitment and a responsibility we have to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's like family. I'm not saying we don't love lost people, but there's something we have together as believers. So church membership works both in an organic way and an institutional way. All right, so now I'm going to take another step out here. This is uh, Lehman's way of explaining how authority in the church works. I'm going to walk through two passages. One I mentioned last week that we discussed kind of overfly. I'm going to dive down a little bit deeper into it tonight. And we're going to connect Matthew 16, and maybe a verse, chapter you've not connected to, is Matthew 18. We'll draw the two together to speak about, eventually, church discipline. So, let's start with Matthew 16. This is the passage speaking about Peter. Verse 13, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said, but, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. He says, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So let's begin with the conversation we had a little bit last week about his 
this idea of Peter and the church and his confession. So I want to divide them up. There's Peter and his confession he makes. Verse 16, where he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. There is Peter, and then there's this fact he's going to build his church on the rock. First, I think the extreme version would be the Catholic version of saying Peter is what it's built on. Not worried about the confession. And then from Peter, there's a line of power that goes down. Because there is clearly being given some sort of authority here. The second one, and I think this is uh, what we mentioned last week. Some people say the rock is now Peter's confession. And then you press it out to say the confession is what it is built on. Peter is more like a bystander or a piece along the way. I think that's a perfectly fine interpretation. I would press to you today, what if we say both? Here's what I mean. Don't separate the confession from the confessor. Meaning that Peter was the confessor of this great truth. So therefore, the rock, the church, is built on people that confess Christ. This is what Lehman would say. Jesus will build his church not on words, the confession, not on people, Peter, but on people who believe the right gospel words. So it's built on confessors, not people that necessarily just say that. It's, it's the people that actually confess that, like Peter did. So from that point on, this is why you think about today, uh, we believe that the church is only made up of believers. If you're not a Christian, we won't make you a church member. Okay? So if that's the case, you're not a Christian, we don't make you a church member, then we believe the church is made up of confessors. People who have called Jesus the Son of God. Okay? So if that's the case, this is Peter. We've established that. Him as the confessor. This is how it's passed down. Let's look at verse 18. Let's look at verse 19. Maybe you've heard this before. But it's worth, it's worth paying attention to this. Because you've got to ask yourself, what's going on in this verse? Because it says, on this rock I'll build this church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he said, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That's a big deal. Whatever you, the confessors, bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus has given over some authority right here, right? So we talked about authority is only given by God, and you only have what God has given you. So then the question is, now the church has been given these keys. They're keys of the kingdom of heaven. And there's an ability that the confessors have to bind and to loose. This would be, if you were to look at rabbis of this time, the idea of binding and loosening, loosening, loosening is would be if they would determine if a certain law bound a person in a certain set of circumstances. If I put the law on you, they can say, this law is bound to you. You have to follow that law. But don't put the law, you're not bound to that. So it's the idea of being able to make this decision. So the church now has the ability to bind and loose. It's something the church has the power to do. This is where I believe church membership comes in. The church either can affirm or not affirm whether somebody is or is not a believer. You say, That's, how do you have that ability? We do it. We've always done it. You may not think about it this way. Everybody who's a member in here has been examined. There was a time that when you joined this church, somebody sat in front of you, there was a representative of the church, and they determined if you were a confessor. And it wasn't 
It wasn't like an all-in kind of thing. Because, because in other words, church membership's not, we don't walk up to you and just say, hey, you want to join? Okay, sign here. That's not how it works. We actually will make a judgment call. We'll listen to what you say. Do you understand the gospel? Have you professed faith in Christ? Have you done all this? And then when you say yes, now you become a member. There is an authority that we hold whether you become a member or not. We've been doing it this whole time. And the church is the one making this decision. So, press it a step further. Let's look at church discipline for a moment. Forgive me if this is somewhat incomplete. There's a whole lot to this topic. Does everybody feel like it's warm in here tonight? Because I know there's a crowd of you in this room that always thinks it's cold. Because I'm pretty sure you don't feel that way tonight. I can also tell something else. You know what I can tell? When it gets warm, some of you get sleepy. <laughs> and the lights aren't that bright up here in my eyes. I can see. Uh, when I was in seminary, president of my seminary, we'd go to chapel. And every time we go to chapel, I mean, it was brutally cold. And I'm pretty warm-natured. And I, I mean, it was fine in most places, but I was freezing chapel. And his comment every time is, nobody ever fell asleep cold. <laughs> and so, you know. So anyway, it's nice and toasty tonight. So let's talk about church discipline. Let's look at Matthew 18. It's kind of the key passage. If you're looking for another passage on this, you want to mention something, 1 Corinthians 5 will be another one to go study if you want to look at this idea of somebody acting in sin. But I, because of time, I won't deal with that. But I just want to look at Matthew 18. Again, think, we're just two chapters past 16. And you'll hear some of the same language as well. If your brother sins against you, so that somebody you would call your brother, so it's meaning a, another Christian, somebody who you believe is another Christian, falls into sin, here's what you do. There's four steps. I have them written on your paper. First step is personal confrontation. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So you know somebody that's in sin? It is within your bounds to be able to go to them, say something about that sin, and if the Holy Spirit resides in that person, they are a repentant believer, and therefore when you confront them, it should bring about repentance in their life. So, step one is a personal confrontation. So, do you even feel, I, I don't mean to go crazy on this a little bit, but you've now, at some level, been personally given some authority as another believer. You have the ability to go to another believer and speak to them about sin. You've been empowered to do that. Say, what gives you the right? The Bible. Right? You, God has said to you, if you see another person in sin, you need to say something to them about it. We'll talk a little bit more about this, that act in a moment. Verse, verse uh, 16. But if he does not listen, so this is an unrepentant person, take one or two brothers along, one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So then step two is an offended person with one or two other people. Oftentimes, this is good to take some sort of church leadership with you, somebody, it's a pastor, somebody, a Sunday school teacher, somebody else along with you. You need to go where you're just not the only one. And then maybe the other person with you go, you're being unfair. Don't go confront that person. You're not right to do it. 
But if you get two or three people that all believe this is sin, and the person is unrepentant of it, let's say that then verse 17 says, if he refuses to listen to them. So again, if the person repents anywhere in this process, we're done. We're not talking about people that are sinning and repenting. We're not, we're not, we are grace-filled people. If you sin and you repent, we love you. We're all part of the team of sinners that are repenting. So it's not the whole, the goal here is not to just beat everybody up. The goal is for the person who is unrepentant will be confronted in their sin. Verse, um, let's see, if he refuses to listen to them, verse 17, tell it to the church. This is a challenge for us, by the way. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So the, the two steps here are, first you would bring the church involved, and then from that point you would then, and this is where I put the term on there, which may sound, it sounds really harsh, but the term is excommunication. It's removed from community. You no longer are going to, going to get the benefits of being in the family. Family benefits. You're not in the family. So listen to the language here. Truly I say to you, whatever... Hear it again? Right from Matthew 16. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two, two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. That two or three gathered, that's the church, by the way. You get, we're in the context of the idea of the church. It's not, uh, while I do agree that if there's a couple believers together, the spirits at work between them, I think the real meaning of this verse is to speak about the gathered church. God is with his church. Because that's what we're, we're talking about the church here, right? Because verse 17, tell it to the church. Notice the church had the final authority, by the way. The church is the one that made the final decision. Okay. All that to say, there's the four steps. There is Matthew 18. If you have a chance sometime, 1 Corinthians 5 will outline the same exact, not the same procedure. In fact, they'll skip a couple because the sin's so blaring. The whole church knows about it. He said, look, just go ahead and deal with it. So, 1 Corinthians 5 is the same story. So, um, I tried to paint the authority piece and the membership piece so it makes sense when there's an accountability piece for sin, right? Because if you don't have the other, it seems really just almost vindictive. We're just going to pick on you if you're in sin. That's not the case. It's part of an overall structure of the body of Christ working together. Okay, so let me, let me try to dispel a couple reactions to this. Because it could go across the board. Some of you are like, absolutely, I've heard it. I've seen it. It's a great thing. Yes. Some people in this room, you may be sitting here thinking, good night, am I in a room with a bunch of, bunch of cultish people, and I didn't realize what this place was, right? You, you just get this, like, reaction to it. Um, wh what is this really about? So I put, a few, I put a few things that are, I think I put labeled like aims, of church discipline. Again, this is from Lehman in the book. So the first aim is to expose sin. Because sin is a cancer that lives in the dark. And we'll get this in a minute, but when we bring sin out, it's when we kill it. When it lives in the darkness, nobody talks to you about it. That's when it lives. If we're really brothers and sisters in Christ and care about each other, we don't want that to occur. We've got to help each other in that regard. So we want to expose sin. It's a cancer. And so I'll pause on this moment because some people say, okay, well, what sins do you pick? Right, you know, because we got a lot of them. So here's, here's how I, uh, I've seen it in a couple different places, but how would you define these? First, uh, they need to be outward. In other words, uh, I can't judge a man's heart. So you may, have, you may be a terribly prideful person, 
but we're not going to church discipline you because you're prideful. I can't. I don't know how to make that call. You look like you're prideful. I feel like you're prideful when I'm around. You may say prideful things, but to tell when you're, you know, that's a hard one to do. So what we're talking about here are sins. Uh, probably the one that gets most dealt with here is being, you know, if somebody who uh, is unfaithful to their spouse and refuses to repent of that. That's probably the one. But again, we're only dealing with unrepentant people here. Somebody repents. This is, we're not even on this page. Um, but it could be other sins that happen in the body that are outward. Uh, it happens if, if people are divisive, hateful. People are somehow uh, teaching false doctrine. Somebody's teaching false things in the church. I mean, that, that's a problem all through the New Testament. The shepherds protect them from wolves. Wolves are people teaching false things. These are outward things. We can all see them, right? The, the other thing is they're serious, meaning they're, uh, they're not small, little. We're not nitpicking people, but these are significant, serious sins. And then the third one, I mentioned this already, is that it would be unrepentant. So we're looking at, once, once something meets all three of those criterion, that's when we begin a process of, and here's, here's behind it all, the second thing I put on the page is we're trying to warn them. Because church discipline isn't judgment, it's a taste of judgment. We're not, we're not doing God's judgment. He's doing all that. However, when we begin that, it's a taste of it. Even when your brother and sister in Christ sits down with you and they look at you and say, hey, what I can tell in your life, it's sin. And you get called and there's a moment of shame, there's a moment of conviction. That's a taste of when you stand before God and he looks you and holds you accountable for that. There's a taste of that. It's not complete, but it's a warning. We want to warn people of what is there. Um, ultimately, the goal is to save. Here's what I mean. It's restoration. Good night. I mean, this is what is behind anytime we do these kind of activities. Uh, we have to be patient and kind and loving, and we are not. I mean, we don't want to kick people when they're down or struggling or having a hard time. We want to see them restored. We want to see them grow. And that is the heart behind the whole thing. And if somebody is ultimately, if somebody is walking in sin, and we just sit there and say, whatever, we don't care, that's not love at all. Because this is done for love for the individual, because we love the church, because we love the watching world, and we love Christ. This is done because we love a person. Is this not love to let somebody live in sin? That's not real love. Love is when we're willing to see them restored, to save them. The third one here is protect, meaning that sin spreads. So if, we, if it's one place in the body and we don't, in a sense, confront it, that's what's happened in 1 Corinthians 5. There's this immorality going on in the church. He's like, look, it's got to get out because it's spreading through the people. We've got to be a pure people, and we want to protect that. So that's, that's a protection. Here's, a, here's another one. Uh, we want to present a good witness. Um, one of the reasons, this is Phil's, I don't mean to throw an indictment. This is an indictment on the American church, because church discipline is something that was practiced up until about the 20th century. Historically in the church, this is a very normal thing, but then when the modern American kind of church growth movement took off, and man, people, it's growing like wildfire. It's not really a church growth method to do church discipline. Not really like drawing them in. It's not creating more people. So it, it, not, it kind of fell out of popularity. But what ends up happening is if you don't practice this, people start going, well, your church is full of a bunch, bunch of hypocrites. And they're right. We've lost our witness. I heard it said one time, is that what if we, instead of worrying so much about everybody going out the back door, open the front door wide open and try to close the back door of the church? What if we close the front door a little tighter 
so that not everybody's able to come in and be a member, so that when the world looks at the church, it actually looks like a body of believers that represents Christ well. I'm not saying that we don't want to share Christ with everybody. We don't desire to have as many members as possible. But if we just let it go and let anybody be a member and they live like the world, what kind of testimony do we have to the world that looks at our church? We've all experienced this. When people go, I know a church you go to, let me tell you about this person that's a member of your church. Now, half the time, the person's not even a member. They've claimed it somewhere along the way, but sometimes they are. And so we need to be giving a good witness. Last thing I'll say, and I might give a second here to just dare into some questions, see how it goes. Uh, the last thing I'll say is that we have to be careful in this practice and smart and kind and gracious that we don't veer off into legalism and authoritarianism. Power can be corrupt. And I'm sure there are stories in this room where this has been handled poorly, in ungodly manners, and in a wrong spirit. This can go wrong. But just because something goes wrong doesn't mean you, you don't do it. So just to say, we have to be careful to not be abusive of people, to shame people. We're not out to shame anybody. We have to be wise about how we handle these things and to press it just a step further. We have to make sure whatever we discipline people on, it is clearly in the Bible. In other words, there are a lot of things I believe are probably not good for a Christian to do, but I don't have a clear scripture that says don't do that. So I'm not disciplining anybody for that. You might hold a conviction, but I can't spread that across the board to say, well, just because I think this is right, now we're going to discipline. We only would discipline in areas that if we said in this room, this was happening, everybody in this room would go, yeah, that's sin. There's not some sort of like conviction about it. We, we, we have to be real clear on this. So some of you guys go, yeah, I, I think what he's doing is wrong, but if it's not something clearly sinful, then we're going to be very gracious in that regard. Because here's, here's what it boils down to. What we're doing, if somebody is in our church and they're unrepentant, it will show up because they're not a Christian. And our goal is to confront them about their sin, see them repent from the sin, believe on the Lord Jesus, and actually deal with the fact of their lostness. That's what our goal is in the whole thing. Even if the person's not a believer, we, we want to see them repent and turn to Christ. So the whole time, that's the heart motive behind it. So if we're creating all these extra things, we don't have to worry about that. If they're not a Christian, there will be serious enough unrepentant sin. It'll take care of itself. So, so there's, there's that kind of piece of it. So anyway, there's just several thoughts along on it. Membership, discipline. Does anybody have any questions? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay, excommunicate. This is a question I, I thought about jumping on this one. Particularly, like, if they're excommunicated, what do we do? Like, can they not come to church, or can they come to church? Can they come to Sunday school? When you see them at the grocery store, do you talk to them? Like, that's that's the, what we run into. So here's, here's the best way to, to answer the desire. Is that, let's say a person is unrepentant of that sin. Well, when they are now treated as an unbeliever, they are more than welcome to come to worship. We're not, unless what they're doing is threatening to the harm of the church. So they can come to worship. I think where I, where I was reading some stuff on this, because I was trying to see what most people said, one of the comments was that when you run into them, most of your conversation with them should be about the fact they need to repent. They need to not still get the benefits of being in the family while not being in the family. So one of the kind of tears we have is we want to love that person, but we don't just need to accept them all the way. Like if you have a Sunday school family type fellowship and then this person somehow is now an unbeliever, you don't bring them to all your Sunday school fellowships and treat them like that sin's still okay. So you want to probably limit that contact. But at the same time, when you run into them, when you see them, hey, I'm praying for you. And again, the tear's going to be do they claim to be a Christian still? Some of them may say, I'm not a Christian. That's different. But somebody, if they're claiming to be a Christian, it's a whole different thing we've got to deal with. Because they're still walking around like they're a Christian while they're not. So all that to say, how do you talk to them? 
I think you still continue to make kind of the main conversations about the repentance of their sin. And at the same time, you love them and care for them. It's made more complicated if they're a family member. That's probably the most complicated scenario. Is if it's a family member of yours, you still have to fulfill family obligations there. Like an actual family member. Uh, So that's probably where you can't be that way. But I, I think there's something to them feeling hey, I'm not getting the benefits I once did about being part of the family. So it depends on the situation and the case. But I think it's how we talk to them. Repentance, love, and some sort of balance in the middle of friendly but not. Absolutely be restored. So to carry that through, if the person walks up, repents of the sin, and says, I desire to be, we're, we're on go. And oftentimes there needs to be a restoration plan. Uh, but we're on go. And ultimately, unless it's grave and real serious, these might take months of time to walk through to determine if they're unrepentant. We want to we be kind and gracious and patient and to help and to provide resources and love them through it. We want to be the body of Christ until it's very apparent you're unrepentant. But then if they repent, right back in. Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. Sure, they come out, yeah. Sure. So, to draw that out, was like, she said, if you... If there's an issue, you remove them from leadership roles. And I'll end here because I know our time's up. But I'll say this one last thing. Church discipline, if we take the word and draw it up, think of the word discipleship. It's the same word. When you are being made a disciple, you're coming under the authority and be a follower of Christ. And so the same way discipleship ought to work, if I'm discipling somebody, the, the very beginnings of church discipline happen at the very beginnings of discipleship. That when somebody is calling you to grow in Christ, making you accountable for your walk, and then at the very beginning of that, that's, that's church discipline. And then after a long period of time of rejecting discipleship, does formal church discipline come to be? So, so really, this is downline of the whole process of us holding each other accountable. And ultimately, so that we would have a meaningful membership, and we would be the body of Christ. Everybody we're walking with are believers following Christ, and this church honors the Lord most of all. Let me take us in a word of prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our church. We thank you for your love for it. God, we thank you for your love for us, because your word does say that a loving father disciplines his children. And so, Lord, may we understand that as you discipline us, hold us accountable, and grow us, that is actually your affection and love for us. May we feel that tonight. May we understand this, this whole thing is just a gift to care for our soul. And so we ask for your hand to be on our church, continue to grow us in holiness, and that ultimately that your bride of Christ here would be honoring and pleasing to you. We pray this in your name. Amen.